good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Appreciate you joining us today. You're hearing us on EWTN Radio, and we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International in Ohio. In this program, we take a bit of time to look at special verses that our guests consider verses they never saw. In other words, as they loved Christ and were well aware of Scripture, yet there seemed to be verses hidden away in the recesses of certain paragraphs that they didn't see before for whatever reason. I know that's true in my own life, but these are also particular verses that help them discover the beauty of the Catholic faith. And so I uh, thank you for joining us. I would love to have you give us a call or a question concerning the verses that we'll be looking at this afternoon. The phone number is 800-664-5110, or you can also call us at 740-450-1175. You can send me an email at marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. And if you go to our website, deepinscripture.com, you'll find out all of this information, as well as you can watch the program live if you want, but also you can see information about our guest today. Our guest is Tim Staples. Now, Tim is a, a well-known apologist, and uh, he he's, uh, was raised Southern Baptist, and though he kind of drifted from the faith, he came back to a deeper faith in Christ after his teens through Christian television and some friends in the Assembly of God. He decided to join the Marine Corps, and during his four-year tour, he got involved in ministry in various Assembly of God communities. Then immediately after his tour of duty, Tim uh, became a youth minister in an Assembly of God community and later enrolled in the Jimmy Swaggart Bible College. So Tim's got a background in fundamentalist Christianity. During his final year in the Marines, he met a Marine who really knew his faith and challenged him to study Catholicism from Catholic and historic sources. And after being challenged, he, he, Tim determined to prove Catholicism was wrong, and he ended up studying himself into the last place he ever wanted to go, and that is the Catholic Church. Since his conversion in 1988, Tim spent six years in formation for the priesthood, earning a degree in philosophy from St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Overbrook, Pennsylvania. He then studied theology on a graduate level at Mount St. Mary Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, for two years. And then he decided that his calling was not to be in the priesthood. He left the seminary and has been working in Catholic apologetics and evangelization ever since. Well, Tim has chosen a passage that at first glance <clears throat> is probably one that many people bounce over in the reading of Scripture. Often we will, might read a long paragraph, and if something that we're reading doesn't quite apply to our lives, our eyes and our mind might kind of glaze over for a moment until we hit another verse that, that impacts our personal journey, and then we start listening again. And this passage that Tim has chosen is 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 11. And before I read it, though, I want to read another passage from earlier in 1 Timothy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, right now, we are at the end of the liturgical year. And in a week or so, we're going to begin the new liturgical year with the season of Advent. And during this period of time, both at the end <clears throat> of this particular liturgical year and the beginning of the next. <clears throat> we focus on scriptures that often deal with the end times, signs of the end, 
trying to awaken us to the reality that soon in our own lives, every one of us will meet Jesus, will face the particular judgment leading to the final judgment, judgment at a second coming. And what are the signs of this? And there are a lot of people that get caught up on trying to determine the signs and the days and the hours, even though Jesus says not to do all that. But still, people want to interpret Daniel and all the other apocalyptic literature. And there's one particular section of 1 Timothy, beginning with chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, that many see as a sign not only of the time, but many have used these verses against the Catholic Church. Let me read these. This is Paul writing to Timothy, chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from food which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now that was a passage that I used to use and at least assumed that Paul was warning us against certain practices that are in common knowledge are recognized as a part of Catholic discipline. We'll talk about that in a moment. Those that take this interpretation of that passage often very strongly end up anti-Catholic and warn against the church. But Timothy, that <laughs> Tim Staples, has chosen a verse later in this book that he sees as a direct connect to this. It's a verse that he says he never saw. Now let me read that passage. We'll take a break and we'll invite Tim to join us and he'll talk about the passage in chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Again, Paul writing to Timothy, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and she must be well attested for her good deeds as one who has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, relieved the afflicted, and devoted herself to doing good in every way, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when they grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock. Many young men and women have grown in character and discipline through their involvement in sports. Tune in when Dr. Bill Thurfelter of Belmont Abbey College joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about athletics and virtue. That's on the next Life on the Rock here on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com 
or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. And uh, before I invite Tim to join me, I want to remind the audience, uh, in case I didn't mention it, that Tim works for Catholic Answers. Uh, he's an apologist with Catholic Answers, and at the bottom of our website, deepinscripture.com, is a link to Catholic Answers' website to find out more about what Tim does. But if, in case you can't get to that site immediately, it's easy to remember, and that's catholic.com. Uh, Tim, uh, you guys had to work real hard to get that website, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, Carl, Carl <laughs> Keating, our founder and president, tells that story often of how early on in the internet years he 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 just said you know let's take a shot i'm sure it's already taken <laughs> but he tried it and got it so uh it's it's incredible but it's it's quite a gift because a lot of people happen upon us uh oh yeah our website just you know inquiring out well, let's check out catholic and and here we are so yeah and what and there's always those uh, uh lampreys out there those particular people <laughs> that just wait to try and as soon as the second as that site is available, they grab it just so they can turn around and try and sell it back to you for big bucks. You exactly. Know? So, well, Tim, welcome to Deep in Scripture. Hey, it's great to be with you, Marcus. And uh, I do also want to take the time on, on the air to thank you for all the work you're doing because you are a great witness to Christ and His church. And uh, you've gone through a lot. I mean, to get to the place where you're uh, serving as a Catholic apologist, something you did not expect to do when you were a young man, right? <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. But I know you're very involved. Uh, you do a fair amount of traveling, right, in, in defense of the church. Yes, I do. In fact, uh, I just recently, in fact, the re- reason why I had to run over here to the phone is because uh, uh, we just had a big meeting here at Catholic Answers. I was just made director of apologetics and evangelization here. Oh, congratulations. At, yeah, so you, your listeners are the first ones to hear about it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. It's a wonderful apostolate. It's a great place. We've, we've got a great family here, yeah. Catholic Answers, 45 full-time employees and and just a real family atmosphere, and, and uh, we're, we're doing our best to get the Catholic message out there. Well, again, to the audience, if you go to Catholic.com, you'll see mm-hmm. all the great stuff they do and resources and as well as seminars and lots of things. I just had the privilege of being on a Catholic Answers cruise just a, a month or so ago, and uh, just lots of good stuff. Tim, uh, I know that you, like me, as converts to the church, could probably make a long list of verses we never <laughs> saw. Yeah. In fact, you gave me a long list today, uh, f- which we won't get to all of them. I'm going to have to have you back. Uh, but it's amazing how uh, all of a sudden these verses jump out of the Bible like yes. they, we had never seen them. You know, <laughs> And it's amazing, Marcus, because uh, some of the verses I gave you, it was not as though I hadn't seen the actual verse. I knew it was there, but I had never heard it uh, expounded yeah. by a Catholic like my, my friend in the Marines that you mentioned before who was a daily communicant, daily rosary, had the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. And when he expounded these texts to me, it was, it was as though I was hearing them for the first time. But, you know, Marcus, when it comes to this text, this was one that it was almost like I didn't know it was there at all. <laughs> because when, when I was talking with, with my Catholic friend all those years ago, 
And I use the very text that you quoted from First Timothy 4 to prove that things like, you know, no meat on Fridays during Lent and and in particular, the, con- the idea of consecrated celibacy was, was act- absolutely from the evil one, and, and there it says it as plain as day. And the way Matt responded to me just completely, it, it was like, you know, we used to, I used to box when I was a kid, and he, he used to try to teach us, you know, to punch with angles. You know, it's that punch that the guy never sees that's going to take him out. Well... <laughs> Matt knew how to punch with angles because when he <laughs> came back at me, there were there were actually two things that he said that really, uh, you know, rocked me. And and that was first he pointed out, Tim, uh, look, if you go to First Timothy six verse twenty and twenty one, you see that Timothy is writing in the context of teaching a young bishop that he had ordained Timothy mm-hmm. pastorally how to deal with issues that are going on in, in his community. And one of the issues he was dealing with, a major issue, were the forerunners of Gnosticism, the fathers of Gnosticism. And you, and you really see that in 1 Timothy uh, 6, verse 20, when, when St. Paul says, O oh, Timothy, guard what has been trusted you. Avoid the godless chatter and contradictions of what is uh, falsely called knowledge, or gnoseos in yep. Greek, gnosis. They, he's talking about the Gnostics who were teaching, as you know, Marcus, that they had this secret gnosis, this secret knowledge that only they had, and that was was uh, the means to salvation, if you if you will. So this gives us a clue here that Timothy is dealing with Gnostics, and Gnostics, as you know, Marcus, a couple of things that they were very famous for was they taught that marriage was evil. Matter is evil, spirit is good, and, and uh, marriage was in particularly evil because we had a pre-human existence. We were alive and happy and well, uh, existing in pure light w- with the fullness of the Gnosis, but when our parents got together and did this evil thing called marriage, we were snatched out of, out of pure uh, and perfect happiness and entrapped in this evil body. And so the, the way to liberation from this body is through the gnosis. But marriage in particular was referred to as evil, and eating meat was evil because you're bringing more of that dark matter, that mm. evil matter, yep. into your bodies. Now, uh, I had never heard that, Marcus. I had never heard it explained that way. But when he said this to me and said, Tim, further, if you're saying First Timothy 4 is contradicting consecrated celibacy, why does Paul teach on it in First Timothy 5, verses 9 through 12? And I'd add that verse 12 there that you yep. just read. And I said, and I'll tell you, Mark, as I told him, it does not teach that. There is nowhere in the Bible that teaches that. And here we have it. And, and what he showed me was that when it talks about being enrolled, this is more than just having your name put on a list. Because notice, as, as you read, Marcus, he, he then says refuse, after saying they have to be at least 60 years to be enrolled as, as widows, he then says refuse to enroll the younger widows, for when they grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, and they incurred condemnation for having violated their first pledge. Now, there's nothing wrong, Marcus, with a widow remarrying. It's until death do us part. There's nothing wrong with that. So obviously, or evidently from this biblical text, 
the, uh, these widows that were being enrolled were doing more than just putting their name on the list. This involved a commitment to the church that involved living a life as a widow for the rest of your life, meaning you would not marry. He said to me, Tim, that is a kind of consecrated celibacy. So obviously, Paul was not condemning that outright in First Timothy 4. When he said that to me, Marcus, I was absolutely dumbfounded. <laughs> and here I was a guy who had half the New Testament memorized. I prided myself on being able to memorize Scripture. And here this Catholic was out Bibling me. <laughs> well, the interesting, let's, let's take a step back because, well, first of all, yeah, I would have been in the same exact boat as you. And, <laughs> yes. and like I said, whether I ignored it or, as I mentioned in the opening, my mind and eyes kind of glazed over for a little bit until they picked up again when I got a verse that, you know, was more self-centeredly focused. But uh, I don't remember that. And I'm wondering if, if we back up a little bit to wonder whether there's any tradition that the early church was building on from our Jewish heritage that expressed some kind of continuity. Because the, the first thing that comes to my mind is that woman named Anna. That's right. And I wonder, can you talk about that with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we know historically there's a wonderful uh, book uh, uh, by uh, Father Cochini called The Apostolic Origins of Priestly Celibacy that brings out some awesome insights in, into the fact that this goes back, the idea of, of consecrated celibacy before the time of Christ. Uh, one thing that, now, I didn't learn this from my friend Matt. This would come yeah. years later. Yeah. But what I discovered years later is consecrated celibacy became, by the time of Christ, especially in the last hundred years before the time of Christ, and even before that, in particular with the, the scribes, for example, who were charged with uh, copying the, the Scriptures. The Scriptures, the Word of God, were considered of course, so holy and so sacred, they were not permitted to have conjugal relations with their wives while they were in that um, particular ministry. And what it ended up being is these men, these scribes, were living lives of consecrated celibacy because they were in, involved so many hours and so much of their time with the transcribing of scriptures. We see in the Old Testament Moses tells the people of God uh, in, in Exodus chapter 19, when he's going up to receive the word, the ten words, the dabar in Hebrew, which of course is commandment or word, when he's receiving the ten words in, in Exodus 19, he tells the people to, you know, abstain from sexual relations from, from their wives. And that we, you know, we have the, the story of King David, as you know, as well, um, who, when he was fighting with some of his mighty men out battling and such, was literally starving, and came to the high priest, came to the, the you know, yeah. uh, he who had charge over the sacrifices, and, and David was famished and said, we're, you know, we're dying here. Can you give us some bread? And he says, I only have the, the show bread here that's for the priest alone. I can't give this to you, and, and David's like, you know, we're, we're dying here. Now, this is an emergency situation, and so the priest says, okay, you can have it, but I have to ask you this. Have you been with your wives in the last three days? And David said, how could we? We've been out fighting, and so he said, okay, 
now you, you can have it. Now, the implication here being, if they had been, guess what? You're going to starve. They would. <laughs> you know? right. So, I mean, the idea of celibacy, and we could talk about Jeremiah the prophet, yep. who was traditionally uh, celibate, even among Jewish scholars, they say that he was called from the time he was a teenager in the temple there in Jeremiah chapter 1, where God called him to be a prophet to the nations. And uh, he became a, a kind of consecrated celibate. You mentioned Anna as well, who was dwelling in the temple as a consecrated virgin. And, again, and you know, before God called her. Mm-hmm. And these are all, and there's, there's more examples we could look at, are all examples of a type of consecrated celibacy that leads up to the fullness of the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ. And how fitting, if you have celibates who were, you know, the uh, consecrated virgin like Anna or the consecrated scribes because of their proximity to the Word and so forth, how much, uh, how fitting is it that Mary, of course, would be a virgin because she's, you know, going to contain the very Word made flesh within her being. How fitting is it for priests to be celibate? And again, I emphasize fitting. Um, but the, the whole tradition of, of this consecrated celibacy, and, and we see it recommended by Jesus in Matthew 19.12, St. Yeah. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, is not as though, and I think this was your point, Marcus, uh, this is not something that came out of the blue, but right. it had been developing in the consciousness of, of the people of God, the Jewish people, for centuries. So in the, the converts, the early converts to, from Christian, to Christianity, those that had uh, bravely left behind them their Jewish faith as well as their, those that came from the, the pagan Greek background, had in their consciousness an understanding of this kind of devotion. And it wasn't something that was added in the Middle Ages or, you know, that this was really a recognized devotion to God. And, and you know, Marcus, that, that it's, so, it's so important that you brought this up, because you and I know, I, at least I, I know, and you, you could probably relate to this. <laughs> For me, history, uh, Christian history began with Jesus and the apostles, and it ended in 100 A.D., and it started again in 15, you yeah. know, 20, exactly. 1517, you know. <laughs> right, right. And, and when you read the early fathers, which is one of the things that I did, mm-hmm. I was challenged by my Catholic friend to do so, you find uh, the mentioning of consecrated celibates, widows in, in particular. You know, Tertullian talks about uh, the widows who uh, would remember their husbands on the day of the anniversary of their death every year and offer sacrifice for them. And, and many of them were consecrated widows. In fact, there were some who went too far in various rigorous movements, like the Montanists, who said it was absolutely immoral for a woman to remarry. Now, of course, the Church never went that way. Right. But one thing you never find, Marcus, never do you ever find First Timothy 4 being used as a condemnation of consecrated celibacy. That was not in the Christian consciousness for 1,500 years. Yeah, 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 which is interesting when you put into the context of those early Reformers that every single one of them at one time themselves had made a first pledge 
right. as is referenced here in First Timothy 6. Every one of them, Martin Luther, yes. Menno Simons, had made a first pledge of celibacy, and within six months of their break from the Catholic Church, got married, and at least in Luther's case, to a nun. Yes. Who would have broken her first pledge. You know, uh, Marcus, one of the most common reasons I find when I'm out and about, and I, in fact, not long ago I was on an airplane, and I sat next to a fellow. It's one of my favorite places to evangelize is on airplanes. I tell my... <laughs> You're a holier man than I am. <laughs> to always put me in an aisle seat because I've got two of them trapped, you know. <laughs> you know so I, I, I was talking with this fellow, and we had just a wonderful conversation. He was a Methodist, and we had a wonderful conversation. Went on for about an hour and a half, the whole flight. I was sharing reasons why, because he was fascinated by the fact that I had been in an Assembly of God youth minister, and I converted. He was fascinated by that. And it wasn't until late in the conversation that he said, you know, Tim, I'm going to tell you something. I was Catholic. The reason why I left the Catholic faith is I got divorced, and the church wouldn't allow me to marry uh, my present wife. And so I went down the street and got married in the Methodist church. Yeah. And there I've been. And, man, it was kind of a, you know, it takes you takes you back. And, and yeah. I said, you know what, brother? I got to tell you something. You know, Jesus said that marriage is for keeps. And, you know, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, Matthew 19, 6. And, you know, and I had to take that hard stand with him. But, you know, that's yeah. one of the things, Marcus, that attracted me to the church, is that you have in the Catholic faith one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as St. Paul t- tells us in Ephesians 4, 5, that has been in existence for 2,000 years. There is no compromise in the Catholic Church when it comes to faith and morals, and that is a blessing. I know uh, a, a, a lot of folks just, it's kind of like the message of Jesus in John chapter 6 when he preached on the Eucharist. A lot of folks could not handle that message. Well, Jesus didn't tell them, hey, it's okay, guys, come on back. I didn't really mean it. But, you know, the truth is the truth, and, and, and thanks be to God, we have the gift of, of this wonderful faith, this wonderful church that Jesus has given us, where we know we have the security of the fullness of the truth that God has deigned for us to have in order to get to heaven. There's a, a statement that um, G.K. Chesterton makes about the church, and he says, or about religion, he says, we do not really want a religion that is right where we are right. We want one, we want a religion that is right where we are wrong. Oh, absolutely. That's a great line. It is. We, in other words, it isn't our preferences <laughs> or our private needs or our priorities that determine whether a church is right. It's the other way around. And we are to humble ourselves before the church that Jesus established not the other way around. Make the church humble when it doesn't do what we want it to do. Now, we're going to take a break, Tim, and I'm going to, we get back, I'm going to ask you to do something. Put on some shoes that you haven't worn in a while, maybe. <laughs> you say you never saw this passage before. When I come back, I want you to look at this passage as, you, as an assembly of Godder. If you had seen it, what would you have done with it? <laughs> let's take a break, and let's look at that when we get back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by Tim Staples, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. 
WTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you too will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. And, you know, Tim, uh, when I was a Protestant pastor, there were, I recognized, verses that were not easy for me to explain, particularly from my Calvinist perspective. So yeah. what I, w- I would come up with a quick knee-jerk response that, in my mind, uh, took me off the hook. I always had an explanation, and then i move on. What would you have done with this passage? Well, I can tell you what I did with it. I, I fought with my Catholic friend on this verse, and I claimed, I tried to claim, that that he is reading into this text, he's eisegeting this text, as we say, he's <laughs> reading into the text something that's not there. I would say, he, no, he doesn't say anything about consecrated celibacy. These are just helpers in the local church that happen to be widows. And, but my argument failed miserably when he said, well, Tim, well, if that's true, then why is it that they incur condemnation for remarrying? (laughs) There's nothing wrong. And I'm telling you, Marcus, I had no response. But what ended up happening is this became one step among many toward my conversion to the Catholic faith. I actually held to, and for a time, I, I was thinking, wow, this is something we need to bring back in Protestantism, you know, the, the idea of consecrated celibacy. No, it's not for everybody and such, but I couldn't argue with it. And what ended up happening, Marcus, is not only with this text, but, you know, we could talk about calling priest father or, you know, uh, contraception became another big issue when he demonstrated to me from Genesis chapter 38 and the famous story of Onan that contraception was immoral. He introduced me to the concept of natural law, I found myself incrementally becoming more and more Catholic. But at first, and i got to tell you this quick story, Marcus, <laughs> I was preaching a crusade at, at my church uh, in, in Woodbridge, Virginia. This is when was you were Assembly the first of God. crusade I preached there. As an Assembly of God. to be made a right. youth pastor. Yep. And right in the middle of my sermon, it just... You know how we Pentecostals are. You know, the Spirit moves us. And, <laughs> and right in the middle of my homily, my sermon, I preached against contraception. And if you could have been there, Marcus, I mean, this room went from, you know, there was probably six, 700 <laughs> people there, and they're all jumping up and down and, preach it, brother, preach it. And then I preached <laughs> on Genesis 38 
and the sin of, of Onan is contraception. And man, you, if there were crickets, you would have been able to hear them. <laughs> and if there had been tar and feathers, you'd have been wearing them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It didn't take too long. But I, you know, it's, it's amazing how that I was justifying remaining a Protestant. I was just discovering this truth and that truth, and okay, it's okay to call priest father. Okay, it's okay to pray to saints. But then before long, it, it became apparent, man, I'm running out of things I can preach on yeah. and keep my job here. Yeah. You know, you pointed out the, the a significant part of this verse in First Timothy 5 that all of a sudden cut through what you thought was a viable answer, and that was in uh, verse 12, when she would incur condemnation for having violated their first pledge. Now, I'm going to draw your attention to another verse you didn't give on your list. A similar similar idea, all right? 1 Corinthians 11. Yes. 29. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, And in a sense, there's the same edge yes. there that says, wait a second. He's <laughs> not talking about a symbol. Now, the audience, I'm going to read the passage and then, Tim, you expound on it because this, see what I'm saying? This is a similar yes. edge. This is where Paul is writing in the midst of the very familiar section of 1 Corinthians 11 where we have the words of consecration for the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. These are what I used when I would celebrate the Lord's Supper as a Protestant minister. But verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Same Greek word. Is it really? It's krino. That's right. (laughs) The same same Greek word that's used uh, over there for uh, condemnation, it's krino. You're right. And uh, if you back up to verse 27, notice the language. Oh, man, Mark, I, yep. I, I always love talking to you, Marcus, whether it's on your TV show <laughs> or here, because, man, you just open up so many memories for me. <laughs> you know, you're, you're reminding me of conversations 22 years ago mm-hmm. like they were mm-hmm. yesterday. But whoever... Uh, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Or literally will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I mean, this is the language of homicide. This is the, like when we say we have blood on our hands, (laughs) if if we kill, you're you're guilty of blood, we say in, in, in English, you know, if somebody murders someone. This is not the language of a symbol. Yeah. I heard my, my friend Patrick Madrid say this one time that, you know, if, if, if I put a bullet through a picture of you, you know, I'm sure you'd be mad at me. Your wife would probably be even more mad at me, but I wouldn't be guilty of your blood. But if I put a bullet through your head, <laughs> that's a different story. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The language that's being used here is not the language of this being a symbol. And as you said... You, in verse 29, it, it just puts the nail in the coffin. He, you, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Mm-hmm. The language is really unmistakable. But, you know, when you're raised, and you know this, Marcus, yep. when you're raised as we were, as I was raised in evangelical in the Southern Baptist, and, and 
it's pounded into you over and over. Of course, this is a symbol. It, uh, it's ridiculous to say that we can eat God. Yeah, I absolutely believe that with every fiber of my being. It's nuts to say that we, you, you're going to eat God. And so <laughs> this has to be, uh, you know, purely symbolic. But my conclusion was reached not because of the text, but because of my presupposition. Yep. Yep. In other words, we brought our tradition to the Scripture. <laughs> Boy, I wouldn't have liked to have said that back then. No, I know that. We, we would have. Said, no, no, no. I don't have a tradition. I don't believe in tradition. Traditions of man. <laughs> but you bring your tradition, your Baptist, or I brought my Lutheran, and then my Calvinist tradition to the Scripture, read it through that, and didn't see it. You know, this verse in 1 Corinthians, when it got me, was actually doing one of the last Lord's Suppers as a Presbyterian pastor, using my denomination's little handbook, and it struck me, why did the words stop at verse 26 yes. and ignore verses 27, 28, and 29? And for the same reason, what are they going to say? It doesn't make sense, so you, you push them away. You yes. ignore them. Yes. And I think the context of this passage, which means that words in 29 make the significance of what Paul was saying jump right out at you. He's talking seriously, brings us back to 1 Timothy 5 because of what he was saying in verse 12. In other words, they incur condemnation for having violated their first pledge. Hey, if these are just a, a bunch of old ladies that want to volunteer some time at the church, what's the big deal? Exactly, exactly. And you know, how many times did, times, uh, did we read of Anna the prophetess, but you just, you know, you right. read over it and don't really think about, my goodness, how many years was she in the temple since, uh, you know, she yep. was a widow? I mean, I, I think the scripture even says how many years, doesn't yep. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget how many years it is. But, you know, it, it's a, you just you read past that, and you don't think, what was she doing in the temple for, I don't know, if it was 60 years or whatever it was? Yeah. Uh-huh. This is exactly what Paul was uh, talking about in, in 1 Timothy, the, the consecrated widows that obviously had been going on, uh, that had been going on since before Jesus was incarnate. But we never, I, never did I think about that. I, I you know, it's one of those you just read over uh, around Christmas time, and and that and that's it. And Marcus, you know, if you don't have uh, a priest or a preacher preaching on it on Sunday, if you don't have Bible studies at the church where these things are being brought out, you know, I'm I'm reminded of the Ethiopian eunuch yeah. in Acts chapter eight, who Philip asked the question, "Do you understand what you're reading?" And he says, "How can I?" unless someone show me. And that's what we've got to be about as Catholics, is understanding that there are millions of people out there that are just like Marcus Grodi, just like Tim Staples. They're devout. They're doing the best they can with what they have, and they have never heard this stuff. God help us as Catholics to, to get a fire lit under us to where we will get out and share it with somebody. I just thought about another interesting parallel that I'm going to lay out there at you to think about. I, we just drew the parallel between 1 Timothy 6, a woman who, women who were widowers, widows who had made a pledge, and yet if they got married again, they are actually guilty of breaking their pledge. And then the parallel with 
uh, those that do not recognize it's the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist when they receive it. And when they do so, they bring that same word, that same con- judgment on themselves. And right. we've compared, so we compared this celibacy and the Eucharist. Now, what's also interesting, I'm going to compare John 6 with the passage where Jesus talks about choosing some choose celibacy for the good of the kingdom, right? Right, right. And what's interesting, in both places, there are people that found it hard to receive. Mm. Remember, John 6, there was most of his disciples said, these are hard words. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. You're talking about eating your body and blood. And so they went away. That's but right. In the passage in Matthew where he talks about, I mean, those that will hear this, not all will hear this. Right. And that is interesting parallel to say that there are many who will find this call to celibacy something a bit too hard for them to stomach. Yeah, I, I think you're. I hadn't considered that, uh, Marcus. But if you if you look at the context of Matthew nineteen verse twelve that we mentioned earlier, yep, where Jesus says, "He who is able to receive this, let him receive it." This is in the context of the calling of the apostles. Mm-hmm. This is in the context of then. The rich young man who who comes and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And he ends up walking away because of the demands of our Lord. I I, I had never um, looked at it this way, but it, it, it's there's no doubt he's just taught on, on marriage. He, he's just declared marriage to be a sacrament and no more divorce. I mean, this whole chapter... Yeah is focusing on the demands of the kingdom you know yeah. wow you know i think i think you've given me something to ponder it's for many it's going to be too hard yeah in fact the beginning of that section up in verse 8 he said to them for your hardness of heart moses allowed you to divorce your wife this has always been the issue hardness of heart or are we by grace open to the truth even when it doesn't sit well with our usual categories. You know what, Marcus, I, I was in a discussion with a good friend, a, a, a wonderful priest, uh, just just a few days ago, and we were talking about celibacy, and he tossed out the idea. He said, you know, Tim, let me ask you a question. He says, uh, you know, with all due respect to the tradition of celibacy, he said, do you think that maybe with our lack of vocations and such, maybe it would be wise to uh, go with a married a clergy, and and I said, Father, you know, <laughs> absolutely not. Trust me. And I, I gave him, you know, some of the pastoral reasons you and I could mm-hmm. could sit Father down and say, Trust me, a married clergy is not all that it's made out to be. Your your family suffers. You know, we could talk about yep. all all the practicality, but the bottom line is, I I thought it was somewhat sad. And and you know, Father was he's a wonderful man, and he meant well. My point immediately when I made yep. it, but I said, Father, look celibacy is not the problem celibacy is a huge part of the answer what we need is to proclaim the gospel without compromise we need to raise the bar like jesus did raise the bar he challenged the apostles with this he challenged the world with the eucharist and sure you're not going to have a lot who follow but the ones who do are going to be sold out. You'll, you'll take, you know, to use your example from John 6, Marcus, he started with about 20,000 people roughly, because remember <laughs> he had just fed the 5,000 beside women and children. So we talking, he started that, that Eucharistic discourse with about 20,000 people, and he ended up with 11. Yeah. 
<laughs> but those 11 changed the world, and that's what we've got to understand. I mean, the, the, the gift of celibacy in the church has been a saint-making machine for 2,000 years, and, and heaven knows we don't want to throw out uh, the baby with, with the bathwater yeah. here. The, the problem in our culture is with commitment in general. That's why we have a high divorce rate and such. Yep. Celibacy is an eschatological sign for us that, hey, this life isn't everything. You know, love is eternal. Marriage and, and sex dies when we do. But love is eternal. We've got to call people like Jesus to the radical uh, self, self-gift that the cross entails. And when we do that, and we have a clear message of calling people to give up everything and follow Jesus, then we will see the vocations increase. And in fact, they are, yep. as I mentioned to Father, in every diocese where you have a bishop that's solid, and, and, you know, and I can think of diocese in my mind, Peoria, Illinois, Arlington, Virginia, and others, they've got plenty of vocations. Or the religious orders that are no-nonsense preaching the gospel, they have no problem getting vocations. See, the, me- the real problem is we're not preaching the gospel. When we come back, uh, I want to ask you some real practical applications for this. Because, you know, something I think, Tim, and we live in a country where there's no place for celibacy. Right. There's no place for any kind of consecrated singleness. We live in a culture where uh, uh, not only is marriage presumed, but free sex is presumed. So it's just yeah. a, a cacophony of confused ideas. Yeah. But I believe that one of the reasons we see aberrant lifestyles is partially because there are people that have a call to celibacy, but they're not hearing it. Oh, and yeah. it's too hard for them. So let's talk about that. We come back after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined by Tim Staples of Catholic Answers. And you're hearing us on EWTN your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined by Tim Staples. Let me say, Tim, the only problem with a radio program like this is that it curtails your enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) It's too short. (laughs) (laughs) Too short, and they can't see you jumping around and and getting the gospel uh, convincing them before them. But uh, as I mentioned there before the break, you know, a lot of people out there don't think, what's this got to do with my life? Yeah. And I, I believe uh, you, you hit it on the head before the break there. But uh, to me, a celibacy is such a great gift. And one of the great gifts that it is to the Church is it is that eschatological sign. When, in fact, Father Vincent Serpa, our chaplain and one of, one of our apologists here, just walked by 
wearing that Dominican habit of his, uh, <laughs> and you, you see that habit, and you know immediately what that entails. That man has committed his entire life. He's living a life of celibacy for Holy Mother Church and for our Lord. He is an example to me as a married man. You know, here, I'm, I'm married. You know, how could I run around on my wife when I have images like him yeah. who are, who've committed their whole life in, in celibacy? It's an invaluable sign for us to remind us as lay people, as married people, what is most important is the love of God. And like I said before the break, sex dies when we do. But love is eternal. And I think that is what people are craving in today's society. Even those who are involved, they're going with the flow of the world and the promiscuity and such. They're searching for love. And as, as the old song said, in all the wrong places, yeah. we have the example of what love is all about. And, and celibacy is one of the great gifts that makes that. It, 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 it takes love out of the abstract, the idea of a disinterested love that a lot of people don't even think is possible in our culture today. That, that, that uh, you know, somebody can love someone of the opposite sex without demanding anything from them, if you know what I mean. Yep. Um, but the, the, the celibate, the nuns, the, the consecrated religious are a sign for us of, of that love, that disinterested love, such as we have with the Father. The, God the Father loves. He, he so loved that he gave his only begotten Son. He gave knowing there's nothing we can give him, there's nothing we can add to him, but he gives, he loves. Yep. That's the essence of love, to give yourself away without asking anything in return. Well, these priests and nuns who are eschatological signs for us, they take that idea of a disinterested love out of the abstract, and they concretize it right in front of us and for all the world to see. What a great gift. Yeah, and... What, what I think is fascinating, Tim, about this is, you know, people can, can say, well, I'm not called a celibacy and, and just push that issue out of the, you know, off the page and not worry about it. But the, what's really fascinating is that Jesus, in fact, taught that there are really two ways that people are going to live. You're going to live as a celibate or you're going to live married. And in both cases, you are to give one witness. Absolutely. If you're if you're c committed to be celibate, your life, your one life, is to be a constant witness of holiness. If you are married, he says, you become one, and the two of you are to have one witness. And if you can't, because of whatever reasons you've got, you cannot commit yourself to marry somebody to have one witness then maybe you shouldn't get married. And we have a, a culture that doesn't care. Yeah, It's trying to say you get married and you still stay two people, two individualized, two individual messages, and yeah. that's why we have a messed up culture. Absolutely, we do. And the results, Marcus, we have a, a, a culture where you and I walk down the streets of, you know, be it uh, right here in San Diego, Los Angeles, yeah. wherever you may be, in Steubenville, Ohio, wherever you are, 
and you're walking next to people. They may be in suits and ties. They may be driving a Mercedes, but they're absolutely miserable, and so many of them don't know why. Cardinal, then Cardinal Ratzinger, in, yep. uh, in his book, Eschatology, which I think is an absolute masterpiece, he talks about how that so many today, and, and he uses the example of people, and he didn't say Jehovah's Witnesses, but that type of mindset that right. sees heaven or Islam as a, sort of an extension of this life. Um, you know, when they're present, when people today are presented with that vision of heaven, it's repugnant to them because they're absolutely miserable in their life now. Yeah. Why would they want this <laughs> multiplied for all eternity? I mean, they'll look at that as repugnant. And so what we have to do as Christians is explain heaven as something, you know, as 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, it's beyond anything eye has not seen, ear has not heard. We need to help people to understand the glories of heaven as part of our message. Well, I, reading that, I, say, I would add to that if, if, if I could, and to add to what Cardinal Ratzinger says, but to, to add to that, that marriage is is a bit of heaven on earth if it is lived properly, and the celibate is bringing a bit of heaven, each according to their own gifts, is bringing a bit of heaven, if you will, a taste, a foretaste of that absolute committed love of Christ for his church in the case of marriage, or that disinterested love that we talked about before in celibacy. And I I think this is why evangelism begins with a lived life long before your words will ever be heard. Yeah, yeah, the the old message that we're very often the first Jesus that anybody sees. Right, that's us. Tim, thank you so much. We ran out of time. Uh, Going to have to have you back. back, (laughs) Hey, congratulations on your work. I know you deserve it, but also I know it's a responsibility because you're there you are uh, heading up a a team of apologists to take the good news out to the folks. So thanks a lot for all your work. Okay, buddy. God bless you. And uh, keep doing the great work you're doing. Oh, thank you, Tim. And thank all of you for joining us on this program. I hope it's an encouragement to each one of you. Every one of us has to discern God's call in our life. And this life we've been given is a great gift. And we hold it up to God for his examination. And we ask for his grace to live it in holiness. And we do it not individually only, but together as a family. Let's help each other in prayer. God bless. Talk to you next week.